My name is Jared. I'm the high school director here. I have the honor, privilege, and pleasure of sharing with you this morning. And I'm gonna start with something just a little bit different. I want you to watch this video. It's the Jabberwockies. Anybody heard of the Jabberwockies? Yeah, they're, they're a dance group. And there's this video, and there are two spotlights that you'll see on the stage. And here's what I want you to do. Count the number of times that any one of the dancers steps into a circle of light. So every time somebody steps into light, that counts as one. Let's see what you get for a total. And it goes fast. You got to pay attention. So I hope you're awake. I hope you've had your coffee because we're going to jump right into it. See how many you count. Ready? You're keeping track of the number of times the blue Jabberwockies step into the spotlights. How many of you wish you could dance like that? <laughs> Four of you, excellent. Okay, so here's what I'm gonna have you do now. We're gonna be a little bit active. I need everybody to stand up. If you counted more than 20 entries into a circle of light, stay standing. If you counted less than 20, sit down. Okay? If you counted less than 25, sit down. Less than 30. Got a few less, less, less than 35? Anybody still up? I don't think so. Okay, now, stand up if, if you saw the penguin. Excellent. Did you see the penguin? 90% of the people who watch that video for the first time don't see the penguin, I am among you. We don't see the penguin because that's not what we're looking for. We're watching those circles of light and how many times they step in and we completely miss the dude who casually strolls through in a penguin suit. <laughs> Though it's awkward and weird, we completely miss it because it's not what we're looking for. In the same way, we see what we're looking for when we look at ourselves. So when you get up in the morning and you look in the mirror, what do you see? Oftentimes, you and I, we will see what we are looking for. And in the morning, it usually starts with a problem that we need to fix. It starts with a hair that needs to be reorganized because we have bedhead, or it starts with cleaning up. When I was a teenager, and I would look in the mirror, I got to a certain point in my life where I eventually started seeing myself in a mirror, not from my own perspective, but from someone else's perspective. And the thought that would run through my mind is this. I wonder what 
she will think of me when she sees me. And I would present myself and fix and try to make myself look better so that she, it just changed depending on where I was at school and you know whoever she was. I saw myself trying to see through her lens. The fact of the matter is there are some times that we have difficulties liking who we are just for the sheer fact of who we are and the inherent value that we have. And the truth is that sometimes we do have things that need to be fixed or corrected. When I was in elementary school, I didn't realize it, but my eyes started to go bad. By the time I was 11, I couldn't see things unless they were close, and I didn't realize it. I had to sit at the front of the classroom to see the board, and when I would write, I would get closer and closer and closer to the paper because it started to blur. What that means is that as I would write, my handwriting got smaller because my face got closer to the paper. At one point, I took a spelling test when I was in sixth grade, and my teacher was going through all the spelling tests, correcting them, and she took mine, she stood up, she walked over to me, she handed it back to me and said, Jared, I don't have a microscope with me, so unless you rewrite this so that I can read it, you're getting an F. And I had to be very intentional to write my letters bigger. At one point, I figured out with a very fine tip pencil, I could write the entire alphabet plus through like H in one box on a piece of graph paper, and you could actually see what the letters were. Public school is awesome. <laughs> uh, the thing is, I was 2200 in sixth grade. So on the left, you see a picture of what somebody who is 2020 will see at a fireworks show this week. You go out and watch fireworks, that's what you're gonna see. Someone who is 2200 will see what you see on the right. It's really not nearly as spectacular because it's just incredibly blurry. I remember the day that I got glasses and I went to lunch and I ate lunch and then I went to the gym and started playing basketball with my friends at lunch. And it was a world of difference because I could see where the hoop was. Before, it had been this blurry blob of orange and I would throw the ball in that direction. It looked more like this, hoping that it might get close. But then I got these gigantic, big, like 80s nerd glasses and, and I could see the hoop and so, it, I still didn't make it, but it got closer and I could see what was going on. So if you, if you don't know how the 20, 20, 2200 thing works, this is how it works. If you're 2020, you see what's on the left. You see that from 200 feet, right? What you see from 200 feet as a 2020 person is what someone who is 2200 would see at 20 feet. Does that make sense? You're 200 feet away, you're 2020. What you see at 200 feet is what somebody who's 2200 sees at 20 feet. By the time I had LASIK surgery to correct my vision, I was 2450. Basically, if I took off my glasses, I couldn't see a stinking thing. Driving in the middle of the night, I would take my glasses off to clean them and freak out because I couldn't see the road. It was scary. My vision needed to be corrected. And the fact is that many times we all have something in our life that we feel like needs to be corrected. 
And I don't want to, for a second, diminish the very real and very difficult situations some of us find ourselves in, whether it's psychological, physical, emotional, mental, we all do face difficulties. There is no question about that. So I don't diminish those for a second. At the same time, I think it's important to remember that God has made us as we are and the way he's made us is amazing. So we're gonna look at a few scriptures this morning. We're gonna begin with Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16. We're gonna read it all together, and I want you to read the underlined part with me. I underline this a little bit differently than we normally do, but I think it's important because what we're focusing on is the way that God has made us. So read this along with me. For it was you who created my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I will praise you because I have been remarkably and wondrously made. Your works are wondrous, and I know this very well. My bones were not hidden from you when I was made in secret, when I was formed in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw me when I was formless. All my days were written in your book and planned before a single one of them began. God made your body, and he made it in an incredible way. And just as an example, we're gonna look at one thing this morning. There are many other systems of our bodies, many other things that we could spend years looking at. Many of you have as you've become doctors or dentists or whatever God has called you into. You know this far better than me, but we're gonna look at just one thing this morning, one system that we have in our bodies. We're gonna talk about the eye. Because if you think about your eye, the fact that you can even see anything is incredible. The most advanced camera systems on earth don't, don't even begin to touch what God does with our eyes. So the way the eye works is fantastic. The cornea, the very front part, when I had LASIK surgery, the part that they cut, which if you've gone through LASIK, the burning that you smell as they reshape your eyeball with a laser, that's a trip, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, like, hmm, that smells different, that's my eyeball, you can be done. <laughs> the cornea focuses the available light like a camera lens. It's at the very front, but then the iris controls the amount of light that gets into your eye. So when you wake up in the morning, you've had your eyes closed, your iris is actually wide open, and you, somebody flips on the light. You resist first the urge to punch them, and then you squint, right, to limit the amount of light that's going into your eyes because it actually hurts. The iris opens and closes automatically. And this is followed by the lens which focuses the objects and brings certain objects into focus. You've done this all the time without realizing it. Something will be in focus and something else is out of focus, but then you can change that if you want to. Normally it just happens without you thinking. You just do it 
because God's designed our bodies that way. The light that goes through the lens reaches the retina where it's converted into an electrical signal and transmitted, transmitted to the visual cortex in your brain. I don't know about you, but as I look at this, that blows me away. And then it gets even better because that electrical signal on the back of your eye is actually upside down. It's flipped. And that signal is sent to your brain upside down. But then your brain automatically flips it for you. You don't have to think about it. You don't ever have to reboot the system. It just works. In the 1890s, a psychologist named George Stratton carried out a series of experiments to test the ability to normalize sensory data. So in one experiment, he made a pair of glasses that flipped the image, and he wore them all day for eight days. So the first day, he gets up, and everything is upside down. Can you imagine what that would be like? I'm hoping that, well, 1890s, he wasn't driving, thankfully. But think about what that would be like. For four days, everything you see is upside down. But then on the fifth day, something incredible happened. His brain flipped it back. What he tried to do in flipping the image, his brain automatically corrected and flipped it back. I couldn't find if once he took the glasses off, if it was flipped again or not, but imagine what that would be like. And honestly, stand in awe of what God has created and designed. And that's just one system, there are so many others from our digestive system and skeletal system and muscular system. And there's so much that God has designed you in an incredible way. And sometimes when we look in the mirror, we don't, we don't look at any of the incredible things that God has given us. Instead, we just see what needs to be fixed. God also made our emotions. We're whole beings, not just physical, and not just spiritual. At the beginning of Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, Pete Scazzaro said this, God made us as whole people in his image. That image includes physical, spiritual, emotional, intellectual, and social conditions. Our emotions are something that God has given to us. And though they may be tainted by sin, they can also be a very powerful tool. God wants to redeem them as well. We look back at verse 13, the word used for inward, inward parts. It was you who created my inward parts. The word used by David is kilia, which in Hebrew literally means kidneys. It was you who created my kidneys. You knit me together in my mother's womb. For us, in our day and age, we would translate this heart, right? Because kilia literally, what it means is kidneys, but the original writers, they would have understood this to be the seat of emotions, moral choices, and personality. So for us in 21st century America, we would translate this as heart. My heart burns, my heart longs. I love you with all my heart. How weird would it be to say, honey, I love you with my whole kidneys. 
Try it on Valentine's Day, and then let me know how that goes for you. It's the same thing as heart, and it's actually used more than once in Scripture. As the subject, it's used in Psalm 16:7, when David says, I bless Adonai, my counselor. At night, my inmost being instructs me. And so I praise God. In Proverbs 23, 16, my innermost being, Kilia, will celebrate when your lips say what is right. So what difference does it make that God made our emotions? Just as he made our bodies, he also made our emotions and he knows what we're going through. He knows what we're experiencing. He knows what we're feeling. He understands our emotional struggles. They can be a powerful asset to us and they can also be a terrible master. I read once, John Wooden said, Emotions are a fantastic slave and a terrible master. Years ago, I coached basketball at a middle school, a smaller middle school, but we had a lot of basketball players, so I coached the B team, which was super fun because I got a lot of the guys who had never touched the basketball in their life, or they thought they were Michael Jordan. And I had this one guy who came straight from football. He had never played basketball. I, I loved working with him. We literally worked on lay-ins constantly, because if you can make a land, you can get some points. He wasn't gonna make a free throw, he wasn't gonna make a jump shot, he was brand new to the game, and he came at the game like he came at football. And so we worked on a bunch of stuff. We had this one specific game where I put him in, it was the second quarter, I had a bunch of players, I had like 20 guys, so I had to just kinda shuffle through as fast as I could, and I put him in, and within like 30 seconds, he picked up three fouls because he was holding the ball and not having played basketball before, he was very uncoordinated with it. He's holding the ball, an opponent came up and literally just took it from him, just grabbed it out of his hands because he was like, <laughs> guy behind him took it. So he turns around, he wants to get the ball back, right? That's basketball, you need it. He turns around and shoves the guy. There's one foul. That guy gets kind of upset. All right, so now we're heated in tension and emotions. So a few seconds later, they're on the court. The guy he's defending, he's just trying to like stop him. He wraps his arms around him and basically just tackles him. <laughs> I'm like, this isn't football. You can't do that. So he gets another foul. Now that guy's more upset. Then we inbound the ball and he picks up another foul. I immediately grab somebody else off the bench and go have them check in. As they're going to check in, the ref like runs over to me. He's like, coach, you gotta get him out of here. He's gonna blow. You're right, he's getting subbed out. Okay, so I, we get him out. At practice the next week, I pulled him aside into the auxiliary gym and I said, I love the passion you play with, but you play out of emotion and look, Emotions can be a fantastic slave, but they're a terrible master. And when you're on the court in the middle of a game, you're letting your emotions master you. And he looked at me like I just turned on the lights in a room. I don't think he'd ever heard anything like that before. And I'm not saying that he became perfect and played great. We still had struggles. But I can tell you that after that moment, he realized when his emotions started to rule him, and he was able then to change and to grow and to learn. 
and it was a fantastic lesson for him. Our emotions are given to us by God. Look at this quote from Jeff Bridges, Jerry Bridges, excuse me, in his book, Trusting God. The eternal God who is infinite in his wisdom and perfect in his love made you and me. He gave you the body, the mental abilities, and the basic personality you have because that is the way he wanted you to be. And he wanted you to be just that way because he loves you and wants to glorify himself through you. This is the believer's foundation for self-acceptance. I am who I am and you are who you are because God sovereignly and directly created us to be who we are. Self-acceptance is basically trusting God for who I am, disabilities or physical flaws and all. We need to learn to think like the old Scottish writer George MacDonald who said, I would rather be what God chose to make me than the most glorious creature I could think of. For to have been thought about, born in God's thought, and then made by God is the dearest, grandest, and most precious thing in all thinking. Think about that for just a second. I would rather be what God chose to make me than the most glorious creature I could think of because I'm so limited. I can't even begin to imagine the things that God can and he chose to make you and I in this way for a reason. And so often we want to change ourselves and be different than what God made us to be because we're seeing ourselves from another person's perspective. Our church right now, we have an intergenerational study going on in the search for significance. I'm taking our two older boys to it and it has been absolutely incredible. I know many of you have probably been through this book. It is very good. Last week, we looked at a lie and the truth. And the lie is this. My self-worth, your self-worth and significance equals our performance and other people's opinions. This is the way the world works. I'm only significant if I perform well and other people think well of me. The degree of my significance is dependent on those two things. This is the great lie. The truth is very different. We do not have to be successful or pleasing to others to have a healthy sense of self-esteem or worth Catch this, that worth has freely and conclusively been given to us by God. Failure and or the disapproval of others can't take it away. Your worth, your value, your significance do not depend on your success because God has already given it to you. He's given you your worth because he designed you and he gave you what he wants you to have. And unfortunately, I know personally for me, I often find myself trying to change this because I want to be like somebody else instead of being who God made me to be. 
And in all honesty, the best person you can be is who God made you to be, not being someone else. We are most like who God intended us to be when we are in relationship with Jesus. And God deserves all the praise for this. That's the sticky part, is that when we're seeing ourselves from somebody else's perspective, we want to get the praise. But God deserves the praise. He's the one who created us. Think about David for a second who by all biblical accounts was a very young, well not young all the time, but he was a young, handsome, and then he became the king of Israel. Super successful. And we may think, well, I'm not like David. I'm not like somebody else who's gone and done great things. Someone who publicly puts on this fantastic facade Think for a second about all the recent, very recent tragedy that we've seen in leaders throughout both the secular and the church world. When we prop somebody up and we exalt a person, we're going to be disappointed. The only one we should ever exalt is Jesus. That doesn't mean that people who God has gifted to share his message should not be on TV or should not be doing blogs or that kind of thing. They can spread that message. We must be careful how highly we esteem them. God has to get the praise, not a person. We see this all throughout the scriptures. Think specifically of Moses, right? Moses goes and sees the burning bush, this bush that's on fire, but it's not burning up. And he wonders about it, so he gets a little closer, which I think is natural for all of us, especially guys. We see fire, we're drawn to it, like bugs. He sees the fire, and he hears, take off your shoes, you're standing on holy ground. And he and God have this dialogue. And in the dialogue, God tells him what he wants him to do. And Moses comes up with excuse after excuse. Why he can't do, why he's ill-equipped to do what God has asked him to do. He keeps saying, but God. Like, hey God, don't you understand? I can't do what you're telling me to do because I've got all these limitations and problems. And God is like, Moses, I will give you what you need to do it. Here, take your staff, throw it down. Look at that, all of a sudden it's a snake. How cool is that? And Moses is like, yeah, that is really cool. But God... I can't because, and he uses, eventually he uses his stuttering as an excuse to not be the spokesperson for God and God says this, the Lord said to him, who placed a mouth on humans? Who makes a person mute or deaf, seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? God said, I know your limitations and I'm gonna use you anyway. I will work through you. God doesn't need us to be perfect. He needs us to be obedient. And in actuality, he doesn't need any of us because he will see his will done. 
It's so much better than that. While he doesn't need you or I, he wants us. He wants us to be a part of his mission on earth to redeem. That is so much more powerful than thinking that God needs me to accomplish something. No, he wants me and you to partner with him to accomplish his will. And we don't need to be perfect to do it. Stanley Baldwin tells this story in Bruised But Not Broken. He, he tells about a group of disabled youth that he took to a junkyard one day, and he gave them all a project. He, he broke them up into groups and then told them, I want you to just go build something. And after an hour, the group was really excited. They're working on their different creations. After two hours, they stopped. They were given two hours to build whatever they could, and they stopped, and then they, they explained to each other what they had built. One group took flat tires, a broken wagons, an old tub and busted fans and put them together into a vehicle that actually rolled. Another group made a house that was surprisingly solid out of scraps that they found. The front porch was the hood of a car. The floor was covered in leather. Baldwin got them all together and he said, you guys did great work and should be proud. Now, one time or another, you have each told me how you feel like junk because of your disabilities. If you could make such marvelous things out of cast off materials in only two hours, what do you think God will do with you over a lifetime? You're not junk. In God's hands, you are beautiful materials to bring him glory. How awesome is that? When you feel unsure of yourself, remember this. God has and has always had a plan for you. He has something for you to do. Whether it's architecture or engineering, could be teaching, CEO of a corporation. It could be a barista because God bless baristas. <laughs> Some of us, we depend on baristas. If that's what God has given you to do, do it with all your heart. One of my favorite characters in the entire Bible is the little known character of Bezalel. When God gave Moses the plans for the tabernacle as they were going to wander in the desert for 40 years, which is like, woo-hoo, yeah, this is gonna be great. He gave him plans for all these buildings, but Moses was not equipped to be able to build them, and so God gave Moses Bezalel and an assistant. And this is what he said, because Bezalel was the one who actually built everything for the tabernacle. This is what he said. The Lord spoke to Moses, look, I've appointed by name Bezalel, son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. I've filled him with God's spirit. To do what? With wisdom, understanding, and ability in every craft to design artistic works in gold, silver, and bronze, to cut gemstones for mounting and carve the wood for work in every craft. Bezalel was empowered by God to be an engineer. How awesome is that? So engineers, do your work to the glory of God. Teachers, do your work to the glory of God. No matter what it is that God's called you to, do your work to the glory of God because he equips his people to do his work and he wants you 
on his team. Look at Ephesians 1, three through six. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself according to the good pleasure of his will to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. When you feel Weak, remember God has chosen you. He's picked you. He's given you a destiny and he will equip you to do it. And here's the amazing thing. Just as so often God does throughout the entire Bible, he flips what culture believes on its head. Culture believes that for you to have significance, you must be powerful. For you to have significance, you must rule or dominate. But God chooses the weak. He chooses those of us everyday people to do great things for him. Brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Not many of you were wise from a human perspective, not many powerful, not many of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose you. He loves you. How powerful is that? He knows all your weaknesses. He knows your flaws. And yet, he picks you. He wants you on his team. The truth is that God made us to be with him. That was why we were created. But our sins get in the way. We can't earn it. It's given freely. God invites us into his family. And he made a way when Jesus paid the price for sins on the cross. By his blood, our sins are covered. That when we come to him and we trust him to take away our sins, he promises he will do exactly that. Have you trusted him to take your sins away? If not, I would encourage you this morning, I would plead with you. Join the family of Christ. Respond to that call. Hear what God is doing in your heart and respond. There's great news. In conclusion, three, three items of great news. First, God loves to engage with you and me. God is not, he didn't just make the universe, kickstart it, and then walk away like deism believes. God is actively and intimately involved in our lives with you and I. Look at Romans 8, 35 through 39. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? For the church in the first century in Rome, all of those things were possible. That's a pretty comprehensive list. Can those separate us from the love of Christ? As it is written, because of you, we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you agree? Does that resonate in you? Nothing can separate you from the love of God. He is actively involved. He loves to engage with you and I. He takes joy in his children. Number two, God loves to develop you and me. He wants to see us grow. Jesus, when he goes to the fishermen to call them to be his disciples, tells them, come, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. First thing is to come, to come to Jesus. Come and follow him. Become his disciple. Talk as he talked. Walk as he did. Treat others like he did. Come and follow him. And then he promises to do something. He promises to make us like him. He came to fish for men. He came to seek and save the lost. And he promises us that when we follow him, that's exactly what we'll be doing too. Come and follow me. There's another aspect to this. God also sees the areas of our lives that need correction. None of us are perfect. All of us have flaws. And God wants us to learn and grow. Hebrews 12, five through six. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons and daughters? My son, do not take the Lord's discipline lightly or lose heart when you are reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and punishes every son he receives. We know our parents love us when they teach us. In the moment, it's not joyful. A moment of correction is difficult. But we know they love us because they care enough to correct us. And God is the same. He cares enough to correct us. We know that he loves us. God is always at work in us by his spirit. C.S. Lewis had this to say in mere Christianity. I think he states it very well. Make no mistake, he, God, says, if you let me, I will make you perfect. The moment you put yourself in my hands, that, exa that is exactly what you are in for. Nothing less or other than that. You have free will, and if you choose, you can push me away. But... If you do not push me away, understand that I am going to see this job through. Whatever suffering it may cost you in your earthly life, whatever inconceivable purification it may cost you after death, whatever it costs me, I will never rest, nor let you rest until you are literally perfect, until my Father can say without reservation that he is well-pleased with you as he said he was well-pleased with me. This I can do and will do, but I will not do anything less. And yet, this is the other and equally important side of it. This helper, the Holy Spirit, who will in the long run be satisfied with nothing less than absolute perfection, will also be delighted with the first feeble stumbling effort you make tomorrow to do the simplest duty. As a great Christian writer, George MacDonald, pointed out, Every father is pleased at the baby's first attempt to walk. No father would be satisfied with anything less than a firm, free, manly walk in a grown-up son. 
In the same way, he said, God is easy to please, but hard to satisfy. God takes joy as we learn and grow. He does not want us to walk our entire lives as an infant, as they beginning, as they learn to walk. Like you and I, if you have children, the first time your child took a first step, you were excited and terrified for what it meant for the next six months and the rest of their lives. They were now free to move on their own and God wants us to learn and grow and to run. He takes pleasure when he sees us grow. Thirdly, God loves for me and for you to remember what he's done. Lamentations 3, 19 through 23. Remember my affliction and my homelessness, the wormwood and the poison. I continually remember them and have become depressed. Yet I call this to mind and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's faithful love, we do not perish, for his mercies never end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. God is faithful, he is good. So those days that you have tough days, when you look in the mirror and you don't like what you see, those days will pass. His mercies are new every morning. A new day is coming and his faithfulness is great. So I want to encourage you. As you look in the mirror, as you think about yourself, especially this week, don't think about yourself through the lens of someone else, another created person. Look at yourself and see yourself how God sees you, created wonderfully in his image, created by him for a specific purpose. You have a job to do within the body of Christ. You may never get fame or glory for it, but it means the world to the ones that he uses you to make a difference in. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we realize, we understand, and we know, at least in our heads, we can, we can read this, we can understand it, and I think it makes sense. But God, I confess that sometimes my heart wrestles with this and I struggle. God, I pray that for me and for everyone else here and everyone who hears this, that we would see ourselves the way you see us, that we would not look at ourselves just the way that other people do. God, for those of us who struggle with different physical limitations, I pray that you would comfort us in that and that you would use our limitations for your glory. God, I pray for our emotions too, that you would help us not to be mastered by them. And Lord, as we close today, as, as we have looked at this, Lord, I pray for anyone here who has not put their faith and trust in you. Lord, I pray that you would speak to them and call them and that they would respond to your word 
and to your spirit and that they would join the family of God by receiving the gift of grace that you have offered. And if that's you, if this morning you're here and you want to respond to that, if this makes sense, maybe for the first time, and you want to put your faith and trust in Jesus and be a part of the family of God, I'd like to ask you just to raise your hand right now. Okay. Father, I pray for all of us. I thank you for the work that you are doing in our lives. Thank you for giving us your spirit. Please continue to work in and through us. And Lord, now as we take our offering and we give back a portion of what you have entrusted us to steward, God, I pray that you would use it for your kingdom and your glory. Pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.